Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is filled, it's filled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what God's words. Okay, well, good morning once again as we take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm hoping that this passage will drive us to a deeper appreciation for, really a deeper motivation for prayer. Although prayer is not specifically mentioned here in the passage. Uh, Last week, however, it was. It was explicitly mentioned. We looked at Luke chapter 18, if you were here. Jesus tells a parable there. It's a story, and he says exactly why he's telling the parable. He said, I'm going to tell you a story for those of you who are following me so that you will never give up in prayer, so that you will always keep praying. That was the entire point of his message and what we looked at last week. And as we looked at that parable, which talked about a widow who kept going to an unjust judge, and eventually the judge gave what she was asking, we drew a couple of quick conclusions about prayer itself. Uh, The the first is that prayer acknowledges a need. Let me see. Gone all around the place. It's always a delay, and there's a large white thing in the middle saying the host has spotlighted your video or something. And I'm not entirely sure that I put these things on there. So let me just say that it acknowledges a need. There is a widow who had a need. And widows in the time of of Jesus' day in particular were people who, by definition, were needy. And that's who Jesus uses to demonstrate or to illustrate his point. Uh, The second thing we saw is that prayer expresses a desire for change. She wasn't satisfied with how things were. And we looked at the fact that prayer goes against the status quo. We can't be content with how things are in a broken world. So as we pray, we're saying we want justice. We want wrong things to be made right, what's broken to be healed. And then finally, we said prayer is a demonstration of faith. Jesus, at the very end of the parable, says this judge, and God's so much more giving than a judge, did give what the widow was asking. But when Jesus returns, will he find faith on earth? In other words, what if your requests aren't granted? Will you continue praying? The act of prayer itself, expressing a need, going against the status quo, shows and proves that, in fact, you have faith. And so we looked at that because we did this as an encouragement to commit to prayer. 
this year in 2022 as a church, as, as a whole. And we distributed these Start in Prayer pamphlets, and hopefully you received one. Uh, if you have one, raise it up and go like this. I see some, okay, even air thingies. If you're here and you don't have one, and especially if you're uh, part of somebody who's committed to coming to Redeemer Church, you need to get one. Michael, would you please make sure that people have everything, every one of these things? Where, where are they? Are they out there? Would you go grab them? Somebody go grab them and distribute them. Michael's on the run. He is, you know, when we were young, I don't know if you guys did the Presidential Fitness Award, if people remember that. Whatever happened to that thing? They do? Really? Oh, did they do the 50-yard dash still? Okay, I'm apparently slow. That was always the really hardest one for me, but Michael, no doubt about it. That kid got whatever, what was it, 10 seconds? I can't remember. Seven, seven, eight, he tried to do it. So he made a quick, quick dash out, and we're waiting for him to come back. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on, and I've got this on PowerPoint, that's okay, but I want to make sure everybody has one. If you're married, make sure a husband and wife both get them. So this is something for you each. So if you weren't here last week, or if you were, and you just need a reminder, let me tell you what this, this thing is all about, this little pamphlet. Um, some commitments that we're making. The first is to monthly fasting, and there's a description there of what that means. But we're going to, the first Sundays of each month, encourage you to fast beforehand, and then we'll break the fast together by sharing communion and also a post-service meal. So, you know, Michael's going to go around. If you don't have one, please, please get one. There are going to be prayer opportunities uh, in the morning, so actually, and this is Cynthia, if there's a way to make sure the teacher's lounge is always open, the teacher's lounge was open, it's a little quieter there, it's just between here and the entrance. I was in there at 10, 10 o'clock uh, praying uh, through the Redeemer re requests and through other things as well. I invite you to join me if you have any desire to, to do that beforehand or some space and time. We're going to be praying more often during communion, certainly offer opportunities, but even incorporate it in our own midst, because this is a great time where we're sort of a captive audience and we have a chance to pray with each other. Always afterwards, uh, Jay Huck, Eric Ulianto, elders, will be and myself available for prayer to lift you up as you have a need. We're going to have periodic evening events where we just pray and sing, and that's our main focus, and you can see one of them is already coming up at the uh, end of this month. Also, we'll have a few evenings throughout the year when we have uh, time just prayer with the elders, and we'll have anointing with oil. It doesn't have to be that, but if you are seeking for, uh, for healing in a particular area, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual or just really fervently seeking God's uh, desires or work in your life, then we're going to be praying for you and, and make that available as well. We'll have some virtual prayer rooms where you just drop in and can pray, and those will be links that are sent out as well. I am committing to praying for each of you who call Redeemer your home by, by name. I started doing that, and if, if you've somebody I've prayed for, then you've heard about that because I let you know after I've done that, and I'm praying for each person uh, by, by name. And then you can also see, if you have the physical thing in front of you, that we have day-by-day -day ministry prayer requests that have come from the ministry leaders. There's a scripture that's attached to each. That Daniel passage there is actual Daniel 9.18, Daniel 9, not 9.8. Uh, that's my fault. I gave the wrong 
reference there. But each of these have a verse that goes along with it. And on the back side, you'll see an opportunity to make your own prayerful commitments. So if you were here last week, maybe you had a chance to think about this, and you can mark them now, or you can start thinking about it. Uh, I want to encourage you to take some time to consider and then just mark down your prayer uh, commitments. For example, one is I'll pray through these ministry requests uh, on, a, on a daily basis. That's your target. That's your goal. Maybe you can say, hey, look, I'll be quick to ask for prayer. And related to it, if somebody says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be quick to ask for prayer, and they come to you, and they say, would you pray for me, instead of just saying, yeah, sure, and then forgetting about it, do it right then. Wouldn't it be great, I was talking with somebody this week, if we couldn't get the service started because everybody was praying for each other? Stop praying for each other. we got a service to do. Obviously not. That's, that's the organic beauty of God's people relying on each other and also going to the only one who can really affect change. The beginning of this says start in prayer. The initials are, you know, the acronym is SIP. So I want to encourage you just to take a SIP and to kind of get into the habit of starting in prayer. And this is something I'm challenging myself to do, and I've already looked back at last week and thought, I have got to continue pressing on this to say I'm going to start in prayer, whether it's out loud or just even internally as I'm engaging with somebody, a meeting. You know, and in, it, since I'm a vocational pastor, you just kind of automatically in something start in prayer. But I'm trying to do that all the time with, with uh, people, and perhaps you can do that as well at the beginning of a day or wherever else you may be going. Um, maybe you'll commit to fasting before uh, the, the communion service coming to, and these are just opportunities for you to check if you're a checklist kind of person, check. I will, you know, you're going to come to the pre-service prayer, you're going to seek prayer during the service, um, come to one of the events, and then an opportunity for you as well to be praying specifically. If you're somebody who's walking with Christ, part of what comes along with that is a desire for others to know Christ. Who is it in your sphere of influence who God is calling you to pray for? And if you can't think of three people, then pray that God brings them to mind. And perhaps it's a good opportunity to ask yourself if you're a little too siloed (laughs) in life as well. And look for opportunities for you to engage people outside uh, what, what might be comfortable for you and then also your individualized prayer commitment so are there other things that you want to add to this that God is calling you to do so there's some sort of collective requests and opportunities and then there's something that you can kind of tailor make and hopefully you're able to to utilize this consistently throughout the year and we'll have copies if, if you if you lose or misplace one or just need a, a new one and the duct tape isn't holding it together anymore then you can get it and we'll be doing this throughout the year and I have discovered in my own life that when you do something like this an initiative you start something new it can be a little bit like like you know a resolution that you make and you're really excited about it in the beginning, and it sticks for a week or two or three, and then it just kind of fizzles out. So one of the reasons I wanted to start with Luke 18 and say, don't give up, is because we can't give up throughout the course of this year. This is a discipline that's going to require us to be committed to it, and we'll probably wax and wane collectively and individually, but we're on this together. Let's jump on this prayer bus and follow God's lead, as he drives us through 2022 
and trust that he's the one who's going to not just get us through, but to allow us to see how he's using us and our prayers to accomplish what he desires. In this passage in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says something very similar to what Jesus said. Jesus in the parable said, don't give up. And here in this passage, Paul, who was a follower of Christ, says, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. And what we're really calling you to as a leadership is, is to a, a ministry. Um, if, if you look at verse 1, God, through God's mercy, we have this ministry. We don't lose heart since God has called us to this ministry. Now, some of you know that if somebody who's called to ministry, sort of classically, such as myself, as a pastor, there's some, some ways people have thought, how do you know you're called to ministry? And there are often two categories. Some of you know this already. There's an external call, and there's an internal call. The external call, if I say, hey, I think I'm called to be a pastor, the external call is other people looking at me and saying, hey, I think you've got those gifts. You're able to articulate God's word, you, uh, you have a shepherding nature about you, you're, you're compassionate, whatever the case may be. And that has to be combined with an internal call. So somebody might possess those gifts, but they have no desire. In order for you to be an effective vocational pastor, those two have to be combined. You might, for example, have a really strong desire to lead in ministry, but nobody understands what you're saying. And you're not a nice person. And you don't care about anybody at all. And they might say, you know, I don't think that's a good fit. Those two things need to be combined. When we're calling you as a leadership, in kind of like fashion, we're calling you to a ministry this year. And the external call, it's, it's similar, as I was thinking about this, is leadership saying, hey, we're calling you to pray. That's something, actually, that if you're a follower of Christ, we're all supposed to be doing. And so we're creating opportunities for you to pray. But that's something that's coming from from, uh, top down, sort of, right? From leadership to the people who are in the congregation. We are calling you to prayer. My hope and my own prayer is that this is combined with an internal compulsion for you, an internal call that you are being driven to pray. You long to do it. You want to lean into these commitments. You see the opportunities and the excitement and the, the sustaining grace that comes through cultivating a rich prayer life, not only as a congregation, but also individually, and the two are completely interlinked. So my, my prayer is that this kind of external call, if you want to say, is combined with an internal drivenness by you to respond in prayer. And that's something I cannot do. And in this passage, we see this interplay between, and I think it's important for us to understand roles sometimes. What, are I, what am I called to do individually? What is God going to do? And who, who are the other players in, in this entire process? And we see one called the God of this age, Satan. What's he doing? In all of this, as we enter into this ministry of prayer in 2022, we're called by God's mercy into this ministry. Let's just take a look at this passage at what some some of the roles are and what we are called what we're called to do. So here's 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 what what we do. According to this passage, if we start trying to do what only God can do, we're going to get frustrated. Obviously, we'll run ourselves to the ground and we'll give up. But 
here in verse 2, we see that we are called to this ministry, and what we do is we speak with integrity, and we also live with integrity. Verse 2 says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. And given the context, Paul here isn't thinking so much about other people as if my ministry is to go and renounce your secret and shameful ways. Rather, if you read, read it on the whole, he's talking about their own declarations that their speech and their lives have integrity, that they are renouncing, setting aside secret ways and shameful ways, ways that you don't want anybody to know about or see and things that would cause shame. They don't, he doesn't want any part of that. I'm setting that aside and I'm not going to live or speak that way. He's calling us to be people of integrity. That is a responsibility we have in any call to ministry. And if you do have something secret or shameful, one of the things that we're called to do is confess it, right? If I had cherished sin in my heart, God would not listen to me. It's, we understand we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We have an ongoing battle with the sin nature. That's why we confess quickly. I love Psalm 32. It's all about that. I feel God's heaviness on me, but then I open up and I confess. I said, I, I'm going to be honest about my sin. So if we're going to be successful in any framework of ministry, but even in this ministry of prayer, then we need to speak and live with integrity. Paul says there's no secrecy or shame in their approach to sharing and living out the gospel. He's an open book. And that's what a person of integrity is like. Now, Peter says this elsewhere later on. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. These sinful desires, there's a battle going on. Live such godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's what we're called to pursue. You know, Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Not sure that was attributed to him. For sure he did say all the friars should preach by their deeds. That is, the integrity of your life says quite a bit. That's what we're called to do. That's what we do is we engage in ministry, even in this ministry of prayer. And then Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, speak God's word plainly. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. There's no need to deceive or to distort God's word. Let it speak for itself. You can be honest, straightforward, matter of fact, and that should be our conversational norm. In Colossians 4, 4 to 6, which is written in one of these prayer uh, times for English as a second language, pray, pray that I may proclaim it, the mystery of Christ, clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So there's an attitude that accompanies the proclamation as well. Gentleness, humility, grace, wisdom, tact, but clarity. Just be plain. God's word is offensive because it does say there's a standard and God's the one who's made it. You don't need to be offensive. Let God's word do its work. And you can 
declare it plainly. I think sometimes uh, in an for an understandable reason, giving cultural context, we tend to kind of backpedal and be light on some things at times. Understandably so, there's some wisdom, but we still have to speak plainly. I know for myself, I think of it when I'm with a group of other people who, who love Christ and I'm speaking kind of naturally, either about my prayer life or whatever the case may be. The challenge is to translate that into when I'm with people who maybe aren't that same way and to speak as plainly or clearly or matter-of-factly. And just to be natural um, and aware of everything that's around us as well, too. I get it. But Paul says, speak God's word plainly. Ultimately, God's word does not need our help. 2 Timothy 2.9 says, God's word cannot be chained. And making the most of every opportunity, knowing how to answer, it does presume we're good listeners, especially in our era. We are just seeking to speak God's word plainly before we're seeking, before it's on point. We need to learn and I say this a lot, be good listeners. Proverbs 18.13, he who answers before listening that's to his folly and his shame. You want to answer, but you got to listen. And we have to do some really hard question asking and listening. But it doesn't mean that we just listen. When we listen to speak and speak on point. And part of what we're proclaiming, according to Paul too, part of what we do is proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and us as his servants. I am a servant of Christ. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's in verse 5. Paul, in other words, is saying Christ is at the center. He's at the center. He is driving everything that I do. My motives, as well as all my fears, are addressed by taking them to Christ. He's truly at the center. He's not preaching Christ so he can gain influence and elevate his own self-image. He's not preaching Christ so he can live in security and comfort. If he were a football player, he wouldn't be just putting the, like, black on, you know, with the, the cross. You get the eye black as it is and put little crosses there, too, because it looks cool, especially when you sweat and it's dripping down. You take off your helmet and you just look awesome. He wouldn't be doing it for that. He might be putting it on for, for a different motive. For him, Christ is at the center. For him, to live as Christ and to die is gain. As I've tried to uh, cultivate my own prayer life more at the beginning of this year, too, I've struggled with a lot of discouragement in the midst of prayer, too. Discouragement uh, as I look around me on a whole bunch of different levels. And uh, as I was praying in the car, it probably looked a little crazy. I was getting a bit Pentecostal in the car the other day, too, just really just praying out my heart and my soul to, to God. It just... In, in discouragement, and it doesn't always seem to me like this would glorify you. Why isn't this happening? In Luke 18, he's still going to find faith, and i got to keep asking, but uh, you get, I get discouraged. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I get discouraged, and we said last week, nothing destroys petitionary prayer like resignation. I give up. I resign. Nothing's really going to change. And I was honest with that about God, but as I was working through that, something occurred to me, and I felt it for the first time in a long time where I just said, you know what, even if everybody around me denies Christ, even if everything does, I will not. I don't, I, I mean, I care, but even if everything around me is screaming against that, I just drew a line in the sand. I said, I'm still 
belonging to Jesus. I care, but I can't care that much because I can't change hearts and cultures or whatever. But I'm going to, as for me, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I don't know, it's, it was the first time in a while when it just occurred to me. As for me and myself, and I hope my house, but definitely myself, I'm going to serve the Lord, even if everybody else denies him. And for Paul, he was saying something similar. Christ is at the center. and I will proclaim him as my Lord, and that means I'm going to be a servant. The way he looked to other people was as a servant. I'm here in Jesus' name to serve you. He was serving these churches, but he did that even to the people when he's in jail. He looked at everything as an opportunity to serve others. It didn't mean that he didn't say things that upset them, but he was there as a servant, a bondservant, a slave of Christ. I will do his will, and I will do it willingly, even if it leads me to suffering and pain and hardship. That's what it looked like for him to have Christ at the center Leadership in God's kingdom, what does it look like? Washing other people's feet, right? Service. That's what Jesus did. Embracing difficult people instead of praying them away. I mean, that's why I was engaging with Eric's prayer. We were praying, lead me to people we don't want to be around. I I just put asterisks next to a lot of those things along the way too. Like, yeah, it sounds good in theory. And then when I get the chance immediately in practice afterwards... I want that, though, because that's what it looks like to proclaim Christ as Lord, but also to be his servant. Didn't he come to you? Didn't he go out of his way? Weren't you the one sheep that was lost, and he left the 99 to come get you? Aren't you glad he did that? If you know today that you proclaim Christ as Lord, you were the lost sheep. And now you get to be his servant doing something similar in nature. Word and deed combined, we proclaim he is Lord and we live as his servants. It relates to prayer. I believe this kind of perspective is shaped in that discipline. Like as we pray, it's the means by which God convicts us of where we have not spoken or lived with integrity. What do we do? Speak and live with integrity. And as you pray, God shines a light on your heart and says, but you haven't spoken with integrity you haven't lived with integrity in the context of prayer that's where we see that we've neglected to speak God's word plainly we've not honored or lived as his servants and we can see where others are doing a poor job but what about you what about me but it also has a positive effect of leading us into those realities as we pray, then we have a desire to walk and speak with integrity and to speak his word plainly and to see again that he is Lord and to live as his servants. Both are happening in the context of prayer. But that's what we do. We are praying. We are engaged in this ministry. That is our responsibility. And it's one that's given to us, but We see more happening in this passage. That's what we do. But there's a God of this age, and he's doing something too. What does the God of this age do? He blinds people so they can't see the gospel. 
The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age, Satan, somebody that we see right back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, the adversary, the one who is the, the prince of darkness. He has a kingdom as well, but it's not a kingdom of light. It's a kingdom of darkness. He's an individual entity whose job description is to steal, to kill, and to destroy, John 10.10. He seeks to devour, and he prowls around like a lion, waiting for an opportunity to do it, 1 Peter 5.8. His tactics are pretty much the opposite of Paul's. <laughs> he seeks to deceive. He seeks to twist. He seeks to make promises he cannot deliver on. Jesus says this about Satan. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. <coughs> Satan's mother tongue is lying. He entices people to see only what this world has to offer and to worship those things rather than the giver of them. He desires people to worship anything besides the one true God, hence his label, the God of this age. He blinds people to the beauty and the wonder of Christ. That's why Christ is beautiful to some, and the cross and all it stands for, the kingdom of God, is foolishness to others. We sang about this last week, 1 Corinthians 1.8, the first letter that Paul gave to these people. In Corinth, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Isn't it interesting that Paul himself, you remember his story of how he came into relationship with Christ? What happened to him? He was blinded by a light, literally knocked off his horse and blinded. And you know, when he was blind, that was when he would say it was the first time he could really see. That it just this light being taken away from the way his, his eye operates gave him a spiritual awakening that allowed him to see things as they truly are. And he was simply deceived beforehand. He couldn't see properly because the God of this age had blinded him. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. One of the primary battlefields is the mind, right? He aims to shape the way people think. Paul thought he was doing the right thing by persecuting Christians. He thought his approach to life was correct. And then when Christ shone light in his heart, his life and his way of thinking changed radically. He entered a different kingdom, a different way of thinking. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will, Romans 12, 2. So addressing the mind, learning new ways to think, challenging ways of thinking, they're necessary components of combating the God of this age. Yet, the reality is that unless God is at work giving light, the battle may very well be in vain. Our responsibility is to declare that. We proclaim, but the, this God of this age is pretty powerful. No wonder you feel frustrated sometimes. I mean, I, I have this picture at times. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a tiny little mouse on a, uh, on a little piece of wood in a tsunami. 
that's coming, and the culture and everything is a tsunami, and I'm on, I'm, I got that tiny little paddle, I'm saying, but Christ is Lord, and don't do this, and, the, and I'm just being, and it doesn't seem to matter what I say or do, because it's so overwhelming. That, in a way, that may be an apt picture the God of this age has, has amazing power. Look at his job description. Who in the world is capable who in the world could possibly turn that tiny little mouse voice into an amplification of such that it roars over the tsunami and says, this is true? Not me. I can't do that. So we must use the essential weapon given us in the battle against the God of this age, along with his word. It's prayer. All throughout the Bible, that's what it is. God's people calling upon him. We saw it in Daniel to do something they cannot do. It is impossible for you to swim against a tsunami. You think you can in your mind right now, forget it. It's not going to happen. Only the one who speaks to the waves and says, be still, could make that possible. When we first started Redeemer Church and kind of cast this vision, one of my people who was offering me support said, now Mark, really, if you have somebody who comes from, say, a Muslim background, how are they possibly going to embrace Christ as you are declaring him? Like, I'm willing to contribute to you because I think it's great vision and, you know, what, but are you really going to see that happen? Somebody from a Hindu background or an atheist or whatever. So I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure that out myself, what it looks like, but I'm going to be faithful what God's called me to, and I know he can do it. I know he can. This is what we're going to trust and believe him for, and, and just like Luke 18, we're not going to give up, and we're going to continue to press and see maybe what God does, but it's not going to be because of what I do. It's not my clever words, even my fine theology, or my, you know, my, my charismatic presentation from up front with people, just droves of people coming in here. So we've got police outside, right, trying to tell them, you know, like they're directing traffic on the tarmac. It's not, that's not going to do it. George Miller in Praying Effectively for the Lost says, You will discover that the unanimous, unanimous testimony of thousands upon thousands of former Muslims who have accepted Christ is the extreme joy an assurance of a loving Savior, an ability to breathe the air of personal freedom, and thanksgiving for the healing that comes from Jesus' hand. For this to happen, someone needs to be praying. At least in, in, in his, his mindset, that's a response to the prayers of God's people and God effecting from that change in a way that could never happen with human, human hand. Just can't, it's not going to go. Can a leopard change the spots? No. Only God can do that. Don't lose heart. Every prayer matters. And here's the thing. It's because of the object of your prayer. It's the God of eternity. I mean, the, 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 it doesn't say God of eternity in this passage, but there's the God of this age, and then there's the God of the Bible. And what we learn about the God of the Bible, that he does, is among other things, give us a ministry because he's given us his mercy. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, we have this ministry. If you look at, if you have your Bibles with you and you just look real quickly at 
up above at verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, we're being transformed because it's come from the Lord, who is the Spirit, and he's given us the freedom we've just seen even mentioned that people are longing for in their hearts. That's something that God himself has done. He's taken the veil off so that we can see who he really is. That's, that's the mercy he's given us. In other words, don't lose heart. You tasted God's mercy so others can also. Not just so that you can show others, but if he's changed you, well, he can change anybody. And the worse you feel like you are as a person, the more you're proof of that. <laughs> if he can change me, he can change anyone. If you don't think God's in the business of changing lives, consider your own. And keep that change that he made in you in view when you're tempted to lose heart. I wonder how much Paul thought about that. As he grew in his life, he said towards the end, I'm the worst of sinners. He thought about how he was complicit in murder, nodding approval, as people made in God's image were slaughtered. You don't think he was thinking about that? You don't think Satan would be throwing that at him and saying, Paul, how dare you tell others about the love of Christ? You murdered people. And he had to say, but for the grace of God, I'd still be doing it. Thank the Lord that he has delivered me from this body of sin. You could sit there and think about all the secret and shameful things you've done in the past and let Satan win. Don't do it. He's blinding you, the God of this age, to the realities that you have been set free from that, that Christ paid once for all, and that your sins qualify you for his grace. They don't disqualify you for it. Now, when you embrace that then and you've seen that reality, of course you're longing then to lean into what God has called you to do and to this ministry that he's given us. And so he gives sight he does, not us, so people can see the gospel. In verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God enables people to see. This is why I say the God of eternity. He's stretching back and he said, back there, when God has always existed, he said, let's take uh, this timeline of eternity and put it into seconds and minutes and he created everything. That's what he did. The God of this age didn't do that. The God of this age is a created being. God is the creator. So you can know that this same power present in creation changes people. He speaks, it comes to be. He turns darkness to light order into, brings order out of chaos. He brings the dead to life. He makes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He stirs the conscience and creates thirst. He takes the lame and gives them legs for walking. Consider God's power relative to Satan's. Satan may blind, but if God chooses, he gives sight. So Jesus shows up in John 9. This guy's blind who sinned. This is done so that God may glorify God, gives him sight. 
And so we need to be reminded of as well, like 1 John 4, 4 says, that the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you feel like that mouse swimming on a piece of wood against the tide, <laughs> the one who's in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's the one who changes people, not us, ultimately. That's what he does. But he uses us to petition to him to do it. He's the only one who can. We think we can change people, children, spouses, parents, friends. Forget about it. So we don't lose heart. He can do it. He alone is able. In one past part, we stopped in verse 6, but verse 7 says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We know we're broken. We know we're going to lose heart, but he says, you know, don't, don't give up, but he recognizes that we're just like fragile jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. If there is any hope, then, of change, it's going to come from God, not from us. We can't do, I mean, what, we have limited capacities. Can't be everywhere, can't meet everybody's needs. God can. So why wouldn't we petition the one who can do that? That's what our ministry is. That's what our call is this year as well. Any power that's displayed comes from God, not us. And therefore, he is the one who is glorified. We'll continue pointing our own eyes toward Jesus. He's the author of the faith, the perfecter of our faith. But that's why we're calling you to prayer for this year, to petition the one who can open eyes that are blind. And perhaps we're the eyes that need to be opened as well this morning. Father, would you see fit to give us a sense of the commitment that you've called us to as a church so that we could honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.